Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the Gospel of John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20, we will read verses 30 and 31. How about our praise band? Didn't they do a great job this morning? Appreciate them. Sounded great. Uh, We're in a series called 66, one sermon per book of the Bible. And we've been in the Old Testament for several weeks. And then uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, we've been in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four gospels. And we will be in the fourth gospel this morning. This message is entitled, The Case for Jesus. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 30. These two verses are the key verses in understanding the gospel of John. They are key. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. About 10 years ago, I was doing some sermon study in preparation for a series, a sermon series through the Gospel of John. And I knew that chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 were the key verses to understanding John. And so I started my study with those two verses. And I especially took notice where John alluded to the many signs Jesus had performed that he didn't even write about. In another verse, in chapter 21, he says that that there are so many other things that Jesus said and did that if all the books at that time were pulled together, that they wouldn't have enough room in them to record everything that Jesus did. Imagine that. But he then said that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so John wrote for the purpose of convincing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the main point of John and the main point of this message is this. John made the case for Jesus being God. Everything he wrote was for the purpose of convincing his readers that Jesus is God that he is the son of God, that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of the Jews. Convincing, persuasion. And as I was doing that study 10 years ago, I got to thinking about all the different professions that you and I know about where uh, the objective of that profession is to convince people of something so that they will then act on what you convince them to believe. And of course, there are many uh, professions that do that, but the one that really stuck with me most was uh, the law profession, being an attorney, a lawyer. And then when I started thinking about John convincing people and that lawyers do the same thing, I, I made a list of all the legal strategies that a lawyer might utilize in a courtroom trial. I mean, I listed as many as I could, as I could think of. And with that list, 
on my desk as I was going through the gospel of John, my my purpose, my intent was to, to highlight which of those legal strategies John utilized as he wrote his gospel. And would you believe what I found was that John utilized every single legal strategy that I could think of. I mean, it was as if he was acting like an attorney. Now, John was a fisherman, an uneducated fisherman. And yet when he wrote his gospel, he wrote as if he were a lawyer making the case for Jesus using legal strategies. For instance, John in, in the first 18 verses of the gospel made an opening statement, a lot like an attorney would make an opening statement in trial. Not only that, but John called witnesses to testify. If you were to go through the gospel of John, just reading through the gospel of John and making a list of all the people he calls to testify, you will find over 20 people that he lists by name. Some groups he, he enlists as groups, which meant there, were, there, were more than, there was more than one person in each of those groups. And so there were at least 20, maybe as many as 40 witnesses that he called to testify. John called an expert witness to testify. John presents physical evidence as proof that Jesus is God. John uh, called, uh, he called two heroes from the past to present testimonies. Now, we couldn't do this in a trial today, but John certainly could. He called Abraham and Moses to the, to the witness stand to testify about Jesus. There's a whole chapter in John devoted to Abraham and a whole separate chapter devoted to Moses and their testimonies about the Messiah. John relied on historical precedent. If you ever read, uh, have the misfortune to read a Supreme Court uh, 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 deliberation and, and their final arguments and their final decisions, you'll find that a lot of times our Supreme Court justices will refer back to some previous case that the Supreme Court decided on. And they will say, because the Supreme Court decided on this case in 19-whatever, then we must follow that precedent and, and uh, decide the same way. Historical precedent. Well, in John's gospel, historical precedent was the 11 times that John went back into the Old Testament and pulled out an Old Testament prophecy to show how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. So he, he relied on historical precedent, which is something that attorneys do. He cross-examined prosecution witnesses. Did you know that there's one single chapter, John chapter 18, where there is a list of, of people who would be the most obvious picks for a prosecution to choose to, to bring to the witness stand and they come to the witness stand. They're all in chapter 18, not any other chapter. And then John cross examines them. And then finally, he does something that's uh, unheard of in a lot of courtroom trials. He, he calls the defendant Jesus to the witness stand. He does all of these things in the gospel of John. Now, I don't have time to go through all of those this morning. We'd be here a lot longer than I would, uh, than, than you would have time for us to talk about. But I want to talk about four of those courtroom strategies that John utilized in presenting his case for Jesus. We're, we're going to see how he called witnesses to testify. We're going to see how he presented physical evidence. We're going to see how he called an expert witness to testify. And then finally, we're going to zero in on uh, what he asked Jesus when he called Jesus as his defendant. 
to testify, all right? So let's start out with this. The first legal strategy is this, that John called witnesses to testify, over 20 of them, maybe even more. And it goes without saying that in a courtroom trial, lawyers call witnesses to testify. There was a time back before uh, the modern era when, when the only proof that you would have in a courtroom trial were the witnesses that were called to testify. And so it's uh, the most common feature of a courtroom trial for an attorney to call witnesses to testify. And throughout John's gospel, he calls witnesses to testify. Now, I want to share with you three of the witnesses that John called to testify. And the first one is a fellow by the name of John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. He was the forerunner of Jesus. In John chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, John tells us this. Now watch this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify. We're not six verses into this gospel, and already John is telling us that he is calling witnesses to testify. The first one, John the baptizer. John came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. John himself was not that light. John came only as a witness to the light. That light, of course, was Jesus. Now, when John would call these different people to the witness stand, and he would ask them a question, normally the question would be, all right, uh, who do you say Jesus is? Or he would say, whenever you met with so-and-so, you said to them something about what you believed about Jesus. What did you say to them about Jesus? And we find what John the Baptist says, beginning with verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and here's what he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John says, John gave this testimony. Do you see that? John the baptizer is giving, he's on the witness stand and he's giving a testimony. John the apostle is the attorney. Jesus is John's defendant. He's trying to make the case for Jesus being God. He's calling witnesses to testify. John, when you saw Jesus, what was it you said to him? Please tell the court what you said about him. I said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize, that would be God, with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist goes on to say, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. And the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So John is an attorney making the case for Jesus. He's calling witnesses to testify. The first one was John the baptizer. The second one was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And we see his testimony in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 40. In Andrew's testimony, we can imagine John the attorney asking the question, basically this question, Andrew, 
after you met Jesus, can you tell us what you told your brother Simon about him? And here's what he says, verses 40 through 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, and here's his testimony, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. John's calling witnesses to testify. It's a courtroom trial. He's called John the baptizer. He called Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And the third witness he called to testify was a man named Nathaniel, who would be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And we read his testimony beginning in, with verse 44 of John chapter 1. When Philip told Nathanael about Jesus being the Messiah from Nazareth, Nathanael was skeptical. He said, can anything good come from there? And so Philip invited Nathanael to come see for himself as the two of them approached Jesus. Now keep in mind, Jesus had never seen Nathanael. Nathanael had never met Jesus. But as the two of them approached Jesus, Jesus said something that indicated he knew about Nathanael. And so here's what he said. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And can you see John, the attorney? He's called Nathanael to the witness stand and he, and he says to Nathanael, Nathanael, when you first saw Jesus, what was it that you said to him that indicated what you believed about him even in that first encounter? And the answer's in that last verse, verse 49. Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. John's calling witnesses to testify. Those are three. There are over 20 more whose responses in the text of John's gospel indicate what their answer would have been on the witness stand. John's calling witnesses to testify, but that's not all he does. As if he were an attorney, he also presents physical evidence to prove who Jesus is. Now, while calling witnesses to testify is the most common legal strategy in a courtroom, the second most common legal strategy is to present physical evidence, forensic evidence, to prove what uh, you're trying in your case. If you are a defense attorney uh, and you're defending someone who's accused of a crime, you'll present physical evidence to show that your uh, client was not guilty. If you're on the prosecution side, you will present physical evidence to show that the person you're trying to convict is guilty. Physical evidence. I remember 10 years ago when I was first studying uh, John in, in this framework of being a legal courtroom trial. And it was, it was at the time that my wife Amanda and I, we, we loved to watch CSI. Do y'all remember CSI? And there was, in CSI, the lead character was a guy by the name of Grissom. And he was a forensic scientist. And so a lot of times he, he and his team would have to put together all the evidence and, and analyze it to see if the evidence, the DNA, lean toward a certain person or persons as guilty of the crime. 
But there were other times when there were cases in court and Grissom was called to the stand as, uh, as, as uh, 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 an expert to present physical evidence. Well, here in John, John presents physical evidence. He doesn't call these physical evidence. He calls them miraculous signs, miraculous signs. From John chapters 1 through 11, there are seven, seven, count them, miraculous signs. And, and John stops presenting those in chapter 11, and he doesn't present another one until chapter number 20. Because it's the very last one and it's the best one. But let's look at the physical evidence, the miraculous signs that John presents. First off, in John chapter 2, John has Jesus turning water into wine. You remember the story. Jesus and his mother and his disciples are invited to a wedding. A wedding in uh, first century uh, Jerusalem lasted a whole week. The ceremony didn't last a week, but all the festivities lasted a week, and everybody who was invited to the wedding was expected to stay the whole week, and the host family, which was normally the bride and groom's family, they had the responsibility of preparing food and refreshments for all these people the whole week long. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that today? And I thought that the weddings we have are an elaborate ordeal. Man, well... Uh, they had a reception at this wedding, and one of, the, one of the refreshments they had was wine. And the wine and the refreshments ran out at this reception, which in, at this time in, uh, in history, to run out of refreshments at a wedding reception was the most embarrassing thing that could happen to you. Did you know that if you went to a wedding and the host family ran out of refreshments, you could take them to court? It was that serious a matter. And so they ran out of refreshments, and Mary, Jesus' mother, comes up to Jesus and said, they're out of wine. They've run out of wine. And you may remember that Jesus responds to her in a very uncharacteristic way. Instead of saying, oh, let me help them, he he turns to his mother and he says, woman, what's that got to do with me? That doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, it's totally uncharacteristic of what we, we would think Jesus would do or say. And so Mary walks away from him. She looks at the servant. She says, whatever he tells you, do it. And so Jesus tells them, he says, look, you have six stone water pots over here. And uh, they're used for, for worship, for worship, worship washing, ceremonial washing. And he says, fill them up to the brim with water. And they did. It took some time. Then he said, now take a ladle and, and dip dip into that water. And when they did, the water that they had poured into those water pots had turned into wine. Not just, not just wine, but good wine. Now, John says at the end of that passage in verse 11 of chapter 2, says this, says, this was the first miraculous sign Jesus performed and his disciples believed on him. That's the first one. The second one is in John chapter four. There is a Roman official 
He's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. His son is uh, sick, and, and this royal official comes to Jesus, asks him to heal the son, and Jesus does. That's the second miraculous sign. And at the end of that miraculous sign, in John chapter 4, verse 54, John says this, and this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, and many put their faith in him. And after the second one, John stops counting them. But it doesn't really matter. They're very easy to pinpoint. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Someone had brought him to that pool every day for 38 years. It was believed that an angel would come down to that pool and swish up the water. And if you were the first one into the water, after the angel swished up the water, you would be healed. And every day, somebody brought this paralyzed man to that pool. They would wait for the water to be swished up, but he was unable to get himself into the pool. For 38 years, Jesus looks at him. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And Jesus healed him. That was the third piece of physical evidence. In John chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 14, Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with a boy's lunch sack, a lunch sack that had five barley loaves and two fishes. That one story is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the fourth piece of physical evidence. The fifth piece of physical evidence is found in the latter verses of John chapter 6 where Jesus walked on water. The disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. And if you know anything about the weather patterns of the Sea of Galilee, there's some mountains on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And winds come over those mountains and swoop down into the Sea of Galilee. And they, they create these monstrous waves. And, and they create these terrible storms. And if you're in a ship out on the Sea of Galilee, when these storms uh, erupt, you can lose your life. You can lose your ship. And the disciples were out there fishing when one of these storms suddenly cropped up. Jesus was down in the bow of the ship asleep on a cushion. And the disciples said, Master, do you not care? We're, we're perishing. And Jesus came up and uh, uh, he, he, he came walking on the water to them on the Sea of Galilee. That's piece of evidence number five. The sixth piece of evidence, Jesus gave sight to a blind man in John chapter 9. And then the seventh piece of evidence, which is in John chapter 11, Jesus raised a dead man, a man who'd been dead four days and was already in the tomb. Jesus raised him from the dead. Now keep in mind, these, these uh, healing miracles, these miraculous signs, these pieces of physical evidence, they grow in their intensity up until Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, think about that. You go all the way back to John chapter 2, that first piece of physical evidence, and Jesus turns water into wine. Now, uh, that, that's impressive, but I've seen magicians who could do that. Whenever I was a kid around Christmas time, we always used to get the Sears Christmas catalog, the Penny's Christmas catalog, and the Rich's Christmas catalog in the mail. And I knew that because they, they had this big toy section in those catalogs. Y'all probably remember if you're as old as I am. And one of the things you could always get were chemistry sets. 
I love to get chemistry sets and play scientist. Uh, scared my mom and dad. But um, one of the things you could do with the chemistry set, though, is you could turn water into wine. At least that's what the chemistry set instruction said. Now, they did tell us not to drink it, so I don't know what you make of that. But what I'm, I'm pointing out there is uh, the first phys- piece of physical evidence, it was impressive, but it wasn't that impressive. But then you go from there to, to feeding 5,000 plus people with f- five loaves and two fishes to uh, healing, uh, a miraculous healing of a, a royal uh, official son to walking on water. Who can walk on water? Really, really, truly, unless there, there are rocks underneath it. Jesus can. But then he raises Lazarus from the dead. John is presenting physical evidence. Listen, if he can convince us of the truth of Jesus raising a dead man to life, why would we not put our faith in Jesus? There is one other piece of physical evidence. It's the best one of all. You say, well, what could possibly be better than raising Lazarus from the dead? Jesus raising himself from the dead or God raising Jesus from the dead. So John has called witnesses to testify, over 20 of them. He's presented physical evidence, miraculous signs, eight of them in all, counting the resurrection. And number three, he enlists an expert witness to testify. I mentioned Grissom from from, uh, CSI. Grissom would often be brought into a case because he was a forensic scientist. And so if, if uh, an attorney wanted to bring in an expert on forensic science, Grissom was the one they'd bring in. There have been court cases where psychiatrists would be brought in to, to uh, testify as to the competence of a witness or a defendant. Well, John's the attorney. Jesus is his client, his defendant. Jesus was a man of faith, a leader of a faith. Faith means to believe. And so if John's going to call an expert witness, he needs to call someone who is an expert in faith, who is an expert in uh, sacred writings, and who people respect. And guess what? John does exactly that in John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, now let me just stop right there for a moment and say this. The name Nicodemus means victory over the people. And his name was indicative of the fact that Nicodemus had influence over people. People respected him. When Nicodemus walked down the street, people stood in awe of Nicodemus. But that's not the only thing about him. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most influential religious sect in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 religious scholars. And it was the equivalent of our United States Supreme Court. So they were powerful. And Nicodemus was one of those. This is the expert witness John calls to the stand. Now, at the time we're introduced to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is not a believer in Jesus. He has not received Jesus. He's a believer in God, and he's a man of faith, but he doesn't know Jesus. You, you can be a person who believes that there's a God, and you can, you can be a person who believes in some kind of faith, but still not know Jesus. 
John calls this man Nicodemus, this expert witness to the sand, and basically he's going to ask Nicodemus this question. Nicodemus, we appreciate you being here. It's an honor to have you here. When you met Jesus for the first time, you said something to him that, that indicated what you already believed about him. Can you tell us what you said to him? And here it is. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And John would say, thank you, sir. No further questions. That's all we needed you to say. Now, keep in mind, this was even more fascinating when you consider that at this time, Nicodemus is not even a believer yet. Now, he will come to believe and receive Jesus, but he isn't there yet. But even though he hasn't received Jesus, he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one could perform the signs you're performing if they weren't from God. So what is John doing? He's calling witnesses to testify. He's presenting physical evidence. And he calls an expert witness to testify. One final legal strategy I want to share with you. John called his defendant, Jesus, to the witness stand to testify. Now, if you follow any law and order shows or, or if you've been in a courtroom before, you know that it is rare for a defense attorney to put his, his uh, client, his defendant, on the witness stand. And the reason is it's risky because uh, the prosecution just thrives on ripping apart what a defendant's testimony is. And so a lot of times a defense attorney, rather than run that risk, will just forego putting their defendant on the witness stand. Most of the times they won't. Sometimes they will, but if they do, it's because they feel like they have to. John puts Jesus on the witness stand. And when John puts Jesus on the witness stand, John basically asks Jesus the same question over and over again. Jesus, who do you say you are? Who do you say you are? Tell me more. What else do you say about yourself? And in the Gospel of John, there are nine times when Jesus makes a statement that includes the two words, I am. Nine times. Nine statements with the, with the phrase, I am. Now, let me tell you two things about that. One, you won't find those nine statements in any other book of the whole Bible. Only John has these. And the words, I am, hark back to the book of Exodus when Moses, the man of God, was up on Mount Sinai and he saw a bush that was burning but not being consumed. Do you remember? And God began speaking to Moses out of that bush. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to rescue my people out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses starts offering excuses. You remember? He says, well, first of all, I'm not good. I stutter. And God says, I'll be your mouthpiece. And he says, well, I, 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 people won't listen to me. Well, I'll, I'll provide your brother Aaron uh, to go with you. And Moses says, uh, I don't even know your name. 
When the people ask me, what is your name? What am I going to tell them? And God says, you tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. And so when, when John asked Jesus, who do you say you are? And with every one of those questions, nine times he comes back with an answer that includes the phrase, I am. Jesus is basically not only revealing different things about himself, but he is sharing, I am. I'm equating myself with God, the God who spoke to Moses on Sinai. And so... In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. In John chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, now watch this phrase, it is I, be not afraid. Now you say, well, that doesn't have the words I am in it. Watch this. Don't miss this. The phrase, it is I, in Greek, can be translated, it is I, or that same Greek phrase can be translated, I am. And so basically, where in our Bibles it says, Jesus saying to his disciples, it is I, be not afraid, he basically was saying, I am. I am the I am. Don't be afraid. In John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he says, I am the light of the world who follows me. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. That sounds strange in English. But he was basically saying, I existed before Abraham was even born. Before Abraham was born, I am. Chapter 10, I am the door. Therefore, Jesus said again, verily, I tell you, I am the door of the sheep or the gate of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved, he says. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 17. Again, Jesus, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, verses 21 through 24, Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. He has a terminal illness. They send for Jesus. Jesus waits. He waits. In the meantime, Lazarus dies. They send for Jesus again. We need you to preach his funeral. Jesus waits. They had the funeral without Jesus. They go ahead and bury Lazarus. He's been in the tomb four days when Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha are just a little bit upset. Master, if you'd been here, our brother would have lived. And Jesus says this. He says this in John chapter 11. He says, I I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he's dead. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, who do you say you are? John chapter 15, I am the true vine. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see what John's doing? He's an attorney. He's in a courtroom. His client is Jesus. Jesus is the defendant. He's making the case for Jesus. He's called over 20 witnesses to testify. He's presented eight pieces of physical evidence. He's called an expert witness to testify, perhaps the biggest expert in all of Jerusalem at that time. He has even called the defendant to the stand and, and nine times, who are you, Jesus? Who do you say you are? I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. John is making the case that Jesus is God. He does that in the opening verse, in his opening statement. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if you have an attorney and a defendant, and you're calling witnesses and presenting evidence and calling a, a, an expert witness, that means you have a jury. And the jurors were those who read John's gospel. Oh my goodness. I just realized something. That means you and I are on the jury. You and I still read John's gospel. We're on the jury. And you know what that means? It means that every one of us have to make a decision about Jesus. You say, well, I don't have to. We in America, we don't, we don't like being told what to do. But guess what? God through John is saying to us, you do have to make a decision. And you say, well, I'm not going to make a decision. Not making a decision is tantamount to making the worst decision. What will we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? In a moment, we're going to stand up and have an invitation. There may be someone here who has never invited Jesus into their heart, into your heart, to be your Savior and Lord. You've never done that. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And today, what better time than the Sunday before Christmas to invite Jesus into your heart? Jesus born into the world, Jesus born into your heart. What a great day to receive Jesus. Would you consider receiving Jesus into your heart? Just asking him to come in. Maybe you've already invited Jesus into your heart. Maybe you're a Christian, but you haven't been baptized or join, officially joined a local church. I hope God leads you to join our church. We'd love to have you here. We'd love to have you as part of our church family. We're already saving you a seat. Why don't you make it official today and come forward and join our church? Or maybe there's something else some other decision that you need to make and you just want to come to this altar and talk with God about it. You don't have to tell me about it. It may not be any of my business whatsoever. Maybe there's a struggle you're dealing with and you want to talk with the Lord about it here in this worship. Maybe there's something that you're grateful for during this Christmas season and you want to come and just, just celebrate what God has done for you, how good he's done, been to you. John has presented the case for Jesus. What will your decision be? You're on the jury.